Now, I went to uni a couple of years ago with someone who decided that he would write his own books of the Bible. He was a bit of an odd guy. Um, he, he was lovely, but he did like to sleep under his desk occasionally, and um, he made surfboards in his spare time, which was really cool. But he figured that if Solomon um, could write his own proverbs, then why couldn't he do the same, right? Um, now, when I think about it now, it does sound like wildly heretical, um, but at the time it was kind of funny. Um, I wish I could remember some of them. Um, they were pretty hilarious and wouldn't have made it in. You know, they weren't inspired, that's for sure. But um, if we really considered ourselves, you know, wise or um, divine enough, then I guess Proverbs would be a book of the Bible that we might think we could have a go at writing. But the other one might be in the book of Revelation, these chapters that we come to today, specifically these letters to the different churches. Because, in fact, some people have gone as far as to pen letters to all the churches in Auckland or all of the churches in New Zealand and send them out telling of all of the faults and everything we're doing wrong um, and what will happen to us if we don't repent. Because we do like to judge each other, don't we, unfortunately? But these seven letters um, to the seven churches read from Jesus as he dictated them to Paul. So they do hold a bit more weight than possibly anything we might, might choose to write. Now, it might seem that these letters um, can stand quite separate from the rest of the book of Revelation. There's all those weird visions of beasts and lakes of fire and things that Ruben's going to talk about. Um, but in actual fact, these visions um, relate directly to the issues that we'll be talking about in these letters, these particular congregations of Christians. So the seven letters sum up this big range of successes and failures of real-life, actual Christian communities like us. And the visions that follow in the rest of the chapters are just an expansion of the themes that we cover in these letters. So it is, the letter is addressed to a church in a particular area, but it was probably being written to a group of smaller churches or house churches, um, and then there would have been some pastors and elders that kind of led all of them together, and they would have received these letters. They may have been a bit more connected to each other, maybe, than some of the churches in our cities might have been, because they all would have received um, these revelations. So we'll see as we continue in the book of Revelation the different references back to these letters. But today we're only going to be looking at the first two, um, and they each follow a similar pattern, which we'll discover as, as we go. Um, the first line is always a command from Paul to write this to the angel or in another translation to the messenger of that particular church in that city. So then the next line um, always describes Christ in a different way that will somehow relate to the issues that that church are facing at the time. Then there follows um, generally a line about that church's good works, the things that they're doing really well. Um, and it usually starts with, I know this about you. But then comes an exhortation um, to what they're doing wrong. And next, Jesus will give them an encouragement to repent um, with a warning of what will happen if they don't. And finally, uh, there's another exhortation at the end to discern the truth um, and a promise of reward for the conquerors. So each letter tends to include some or all of these elements, depending on whether Jesus is wanting to encourage or challenge that particular church. So we start with the first letter to the church in Ephesus, and you can read along 
as we go. So it begins with a command to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Then Christ describes himself. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Next is the commendation of good works. I know your good deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Next, the accusation. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. An exhortation to repent. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. An exhortation to discern the truth follows. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, a promise to the conquerors. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this letter um, to the church in Ephesus does begin with encouragement. Ephesus was a city with plenty of pagan worship going on, and the church had been doing really well to resist these false gods that um, the culture had tried to impose on them. So they are commended for this, for their perseverance in this. This group of people that are mentioned, the Nicolaitans, represent some people who were practicing that it was kind of okay to participate in the surrounding culture, or even like encouraged to be part of what was going on. And we don't know specifically what that was describing, but apparently the fact that the Ephesians were against this is a good thing. So all of these things were good. The church had worked really hard to be consumed with works of love in their community, but then we come to verse 4, which brings to light their vital flaw. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now what is this first love? Some scholars um, can't decide whether the love that is mentioned is a love for God first or a love for each other and their community. And others would think, and I think I would follow this thought as well, that these two are connected because if the church had forsaken their love for God, then eventually their love for the people around them would start to crumble as well. And likewise, if they had forsaken their love for each other, then how genuine was their love for God in the first place? So this was the problem. They had forgotten their first love, which was their witnessing spirit that they had first embodied to people around them. And so, in turn, their love for God had diminished as their love for people had waned. And these two are connected. As one author has said about this passage, where once they were known as a loving community, now they had become a policing one focused on works and rules and not on love anymore. And unfortunately, all of those things that they were doing right that we heard about was not enough or enough of an excuse to make up for everything they were doing wrong. So the exhortation from Jesus comes to rekindle the flame for witness among you. 
He uses the image of himself among the lampstands, which some of you might remember from the image that we saw last week, um, to remind them that he is right in the middle of the lampstands with them, but also because it speaks of light and them being a witness to the people around them. So their call was to be light bearers, and if they didn't, then the light would be taken away from them. So Jesus gives the encouragement to remember, to repent, and to do. Remember how far you have fallen. Remember where you have came from. Just like how we shared communion this morning, we remember what Christ has done for us. We remember what we were saved from and the community that we can now speak into. Then he gives the encouragement to repent, which is to change direction. Turn from something undesirable to something desirable. Do those things that you did at first and return to your first love for God and for the community around you. Now, I'm sure you're all a lot um, more spiritual than me and you haven't wasted 20 minutes or an hour of your life over the last couple of weeks on the GC, the new TV show. Are the only unspiritual one in the house? No hands. No one's admitting it. That's fine. I don't mind admitting it that I watched the second episode this week um, because these kind of things do intrigue me and I'm interested in trends and figuring out why they're a trend. Um, But it was actually worse than I expected it to be. Heads up. Um, I'm not going to give away the ending. If you haven't caught it on demand yet or anything, you can still watch it. But I did find something quite interesting um, in between all of the kind of drinking and accents and um, fake tans and everything. Um, What I found out is that the show makes this really big deal of the fact that most of these young people um, are originally from New Zealand and living in the Gold Coast. Um, And so in the opening credits, they'll have the person's name and then they'll feature their tribe name underneath them. Um, And one character even goes as far as to go and get um, a Maori design tattoo on him because of how important his culture is to him and what it means and apparently about how much he misses home. But it's interesting because they don't miss home enough to actually live there or to really have that much to do with um, their culture and their heritage. So for all of their nice words about New Zealand and what it means to them, they've still only really chosen to live on the GC, apparently for the girls and the money. So have they, I ask you, tell me if this is stretching it, have they forsaken their first love? Have they chosen something that's really fleeting and immediately gratifying um, in place of something that's actually long-lasting and apparently really important to them? Have they forsaken their first love? Who knew that there was something so profound in the GC? Now, of all the things that Jesus said to this church in Ephesus, I find it interesting that he said to the Ephesians they had abandoned their first love or the love they had at first. Because we might notice all sorts of other things about churches or about our own that we don't think are right. So he didn't say that they weren't singing the right songs. Um, He didn't say that their youth ministry was too loud. Um, He didn't say they needed to buy a bigger building. He didn't even say they needed better staff or more equipment. Um, Something much more fundamental apparently was really important and essential and missing for the Ephesians, and that was their first love, their first love for God and for each other. And missing this is just a tragedy. Now, I recently um, 
had the great joy of marrying two of my best friends. Um, so I got to be their marriage celebrant rather than I got married to two people. It's kind of an awkward thing to say. Um, and I've found since then a few people have um, asked me to celebrate their wedding when they get married. I mean, they're not even engaged now, so they're going to forget. It was just, you know, people are being nice. Um, but, but it's awkward because, like, one guy said to me that if he ever got married, he would want me to celebrate the wedding. And straight away, I was like, I'd love to marry you. And then quickly, you and someone else. I would love to marry you and someone else. Because it's a bit, it's a bit confusing in there. But anyway, I, I hope I recovered. Um, I don't really mind the awkwardness of it. But um, when I was thinking about what to say at this wedding... Um, that I was doing for my friends. Um, coming, I was trying to think of something insightful to say about marriage, um, coming from someone not married, and I got to thinking about this idea of first love. And so I shared with them um, how important it was that first and foremost, these two were best friends and husband and wife. So before they came to be business partners or flatmates or before they got to be parents in the years to come or grandparents even further down the track or whatever other role um, that they decided to play in their life. Before any of that, their first role was to be best friend to each other. And I got them to look at each other and I said to them, this is your best friend. Now, when I was working at another church, Pastor Lee um, I knew a youth who, whose parents were very involved in the church and who had put so much time into their kids and into their job and into church and service and all those good things that they seemed to have forsaken their first love for each other. So they still lived together and they weren't fighting or divorcing or anything like that, but they had lost what they first had. And I've seen it, maybe you've seen it, um, but it's such a tragedy when people break up or are unhappy or get divorced because their first love has been forsaken. So their first love became their kids or their jobs or their dreams and ambitions and all of those honorable things, all of those good things to have as a priority, but not each other as their first priority. And it's heartbreaking when we see this happen. So the Ephesians had forgotten their first love for God and then for the people around them who so desperately needed witnessing. And it's not really that hard to connect this with us today. I mean, in a pretty similar pagan culture, except that maybe our gods are different. They might be consumerism or celebrity or individualism. Um, there are plenty of people around us who need to be shown the light and that there, are, there is a different way to live. So is our first love firmly in God and then the people he has put around us? Or are we distracted either by the culture or by even doing good things, by even working for and in the church? Are we distracted by that? Has life gotten so busy and then it's gotten really easy just to push God out to the edges um, and not give him what was first? Are we running the risk of becoming just like the Ephesians who had all the works and the appearance of being really holy and righteous but without that heart motive? So following this letter, we read about um, quite a different church in the next letter to the church in Smyrna. So again, this begins with a command to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Then Christ's self-description. 
These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Commendation of good works. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Then the same exhortation to discern the truth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then the promise to the conquerors. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now Smyrna can strike us as quite a different church to Ephesus. So they have been commended for their endurance and their faith despite persecution. And in fact, this persecution seemed to occur directly as a result of them witnessing to the lordship of Christ in their own life. And this was the reason for John's suffering, and it's the same reason for Smyrna's. They were poor and struggling, but rich in patience. So in the same way, they are specifically reminded that Jesus is the first and the last. And it's important for them to know that he is sovereign over history, but also over their situation. It's also important for them to know that he died and came back to life. So while they are struggling, there will be new life for them as well. They don't have this tragic flaw like the Ephesians, but they do continue to suffer and be put to the test. So this promise of life is coming to them if they are faithful, but it doesn't mean that they will be delivered from the suffering. And in a couple of chapters time, we read about the church in Philadelphia and they are delivered from their suffering. And it doesn't seem fair, but Jesus doesn't promise to uh, rescue the church in Smyrna in the same way, but only that they will one day receive the victor's crown. So this promise of life for them, it doesn't come through some sort of escape from their suffering, but through enduring in the midst of it. Now, we might find ourselves more easily identifying with the church in Ephesus rather than the church in Smyrna. They're quite different, but I think there is a connection between these two places. They're totally different churches with different issues and different encouragements and challenges, but there's something that joins them together. Because if their first love is their priority, their love for God and for the community around them, then it would seem that this could lead to the kind of persecution that requires real patience and endurance and faith. So Smyrna had so witnessed to Jesus that they were facing martyrdoms because of it. So Ephesus, if they put their priority back on Jesus and on witnessing to him, they could be in the same place as Smyrna. Now, I'm sure they wouldn't want to willingly, but it seems like witnessing can often lead to this kind of persecution. And I guess in the cases of these congregations, they were fighting all kinds of empires and powers that didn't really want Jesus to be on the throne. And so I guess today we may have similar empires and powers, um, and there are strong vibes that they don't want Jesus to be glorified. And so witnessing, it seems, in one way or another, can lead to having to fight for your faith. It's really hard for us, though, to think about persecution in our context, like in a country where we don't have to face martyrdom for our faith, 
it's really hard to identify. We can't even think about living with that kind of risk like many other people in the world. Um, just this week I was reading about a pastor in the Philippines who was shot dead in front, actually in front of one of his children um, just last month. And the report was saying that they don't yet know the motives for the attack um, and they don't know who did it, but, but also at the same time that there are growing numbers of murders of Christian pastors in the Philippines. Um, so this wasn't, this wasn't just a one-off, this has happened before. And interestingly, in the Philippines, um, they've also got the fastest growing rate of Christian converts in Southeast Asia. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It would seem that this witnessing um, has directly led to persecution for people in that country. But what does it look like in New Zealand in 2011? Persecution. We might not face um, death, but we can face hardships on a totally different level um, for our faith. It might be that you are in a family where you're the only Christian, and that can be really hard work, like if your family don't understand or are antagonistic um, towards you and what you believe. Or maybe at your, in your workplace or at uni or at school, there's a culture that kind of goes against subtly what you believe in. Or maybe at work um, you support causes or clients or other companies that you have an issue with. And most of the time, this won't result in you losing your job or your family and certainly not your life. But this kind of pressure can still be really hard work. Um, I think we can take heart from this passage that there will be victory in this form of persecution. Um, but also that we can continue to pray for those people who are persecuted in ways we don't even understand for their faith. But I wonder if persecution in our context can also be not always being liked. I think sometimes I would want to be too much to be liked, and that could lead me to compromise what I think is okay, not necessarily to deny Jesus, um, but to compromise on what I believe in. I don't know if any of you can identify, but we want, we want people to like us and think that we're at least a little bit cool. Um, but then I wonder if we're showing them anything different between us and anyone else, and I wonder if the grace of God is having a chance to come through. Am I standing up for people's rights, or what will bring them value and truth? And that's really hard, something I struggle with, and I definitely don't have it right at all. But I guess as we continue to love God, and to have our first love firmly in Him, then this love for the people around us will continue to be shaped, and formed by him. And so the first step is getting our first love back to God and being his light around us. And maybe you need to challenge yourself to return to this first love and remember his place in your life. I would like to encourage you to take a look at where God is in your life. Is his grace and your witness to that the first thing? Take some time to consider that. There's that really well-loved, um, I think it's a Stephen Covey example of the jar with the rocks and the sand, and how if you've got a jar and you fill it with sand first and then try and put in rocks around it, you won't fit in um, as much as if you take the sand out, put the rocks in, and then fill the sand around the rocks. 
And it's not talking about kind of jamming your life with lots of stuff, but about having those rocks as your priorities and as your big things in your life so that they always come first. And so our first love goes first because otherwise something will always compete and um, try and win our attention and our time and our resources, our money maybe. So then with this in place, I guess we have to prepare for these hardships in whatever way they may come. But I think that this victor's crown and also the closeness of Jesus with us is worth that struggle. So we would encourage you if you want to know this closeness or want some encouragement in your journey that we would love to be able to pray with you and support you as I'm sure your life groups would and your friends here at church. But in the meantime, let us close in prayer for each other and also for people in the world that are struggling um, with persecution. God, we are just so grateful um, for your grace and for what you did in sending your son um, to earth to show us how to live and then to die for us. Um, we, we don't even begin to understand what kind of a sacrifice that was for you and what you did to show us how much you love us. And we so desperately want you to be our first love. There's plenty of other things that will compete for our time, but um, we want to today put you back into that spot in our lives. Give us the strength um, in the different situations we're in where it might be hard to be a Christian and to be a witness. Give us encouragement and good support around us as we try and navigate what to do in those places. But today, particularly God, we think of people in churches all over the world who are persecuted and who face um, untold hardships for believing in you. We take heart in this passage that they will receive the victor's crown. And we just lift them up to you to strengthen and protect them. And we thank you for all that they are doing to continue to be a witness to your light um, in this quite dark world. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.